and welcome to Local Aotearoa, a podcast dedicated to what's happening in the world of local government and local democracy in New Zealand. So, as you have noticed, it's been a few months since the last episode of Local Aotearoa, and basically what happened is I got busy. Uh, got busy with council, uh, then we decided to redecorate half of the house, which took my recording studio out of action. Uh, that's never good, and that was out of action for a bit longer than we had planned. Uh, then we got to the school holidays, I got sick with the flu that the kids brought home from school and daycare, um, and that was followed up by a chest and a sinus infection. Uh, and chuck into that mix that obviously because I didn't stand again for re-election I've been busy job hunting uh, so that's meant that the limited time that I normally had had available to record this uh, and that remember this you've got to uh, come up with an idea for an episode you've got to research it you've got to script it you've got to edit the script then you've got to record it then you've got to edit the recording do any uh, retakes that you need to do then you've got to publish it and promote it um, it pretty much meant that the time I'd normally have available for that pretty quickly evaporated um, and not to mention the fact that actually while I have been job hunting I've tried to keep a slightly uh, lower profile than I normally would um, just so I'm not rocking anyone's boat uh, you know, just um, trying to put my best foot forward for the various roles that I've applied for. But anyway, all of that brings us to this episode, uh, which I've called Thoughts on the New Triennium, because it's basically what it is. It's my reflections on the recent local government elections, and sort of my random thoughts on what the next three years in local government might hold. Uh, then I'll have a little discussion at the end of today's episode about what the future for the podcast, uh, what might be held in the future for that. Uh, I haven't really scripted today's episode, if you hadn't guessed already. Uh, and, well, I have put together a few bullet points of the topics I want to cover. Um, but that probably means that this is going to be a little bit more fluid, uh, a little bit more disjointed. Um, and I'll probably given a bit to my naturally verbose style um, but I actually figured that taking this approach might be the best way to rip the band-aid off in terms of actually recording some episodes again uh, and it also means that you might hear me sort of typing and clicking and googling away on things as I record as well because I'm almost making this up as I go along not quite not quite so anyway Let's talk about the recent local government elections. Uh, now, a lot has been written about them already, so I'm not proposing to rehash a lot of that discussion. I think the first thing we really need to acknowledge is that the turnout in these elections was abysmally low. Abysmally low. It must be a pretty much the lowest on record. And actually, having just said I was going to Google things, I've literally just uh, stopped recording and Googled it. Just 36% of eligible New Zealanders cast their vote in the local government elections, and that's compared to 42% uh, in 2019. Now, this was from a few weeks ago, so the, the percentage might have lifted uh, slightly, but going back as far as uh, 1989, when the last big restructure happened, I can see that the turnout then was about 57%. Now, this actually compares to general elections, where if I can find the figure in this story, I am literally scrolling while I'm recording. There, there we go. Voter turnout at the 2020 general election was 82%. So, 
It is absolutely incredible that voter turnout for the most recent local body election was less than half of the most recent general election. Now that's that's a pretty damning indictment on the state of local government, I feel. I don't think you could claim there was any specific thing that was potentially um, suppressing the vote, other than, I mean, postal voting's always been the norm. Uh, Potentially it's been less well handled this time around, uh, especially looking at the lays and issues of some people receiving voting papers. I believe that uh, Nana Mahuta, the local government minister, might not have even received her voting papers, which is quite incredible. Um, but that's, you know, that's, I think, a huge area of concern. Uh, and I, you know, I can't put my finger down to what it is. Is it apathy about local government? Uh, do people just feel like it doesn't matter what or who they vote for in local government because it's not going to make much of a difference? Um, is it just a case that people are a bit exhausted with politics because it has felt, you know, politics has felt very intense and very all-consuming to some extent, I think, over the last few years with everything that has been going on uh, both domestically and internationally and maybe there's a bit of, uh, I guess, voter fatigue flowing through in terms of how people are engaging, engaging with politics. Um, is it all the reforms? Are people feeling like local government is about to become very irrelevant and so they don't see the point in trying to uh, participate in something where they feel like it's a lot. It's going to lose a lot of what it does or it's going to change a lot in the next few years so they're sort of sitting back and waiting. Um, is it just too, is local government too uh, the structure and the voting and almost the engagement of it too structured towards uh, property owners who are becoming a less and less share of the population because of skyrocketing home ownership, uh, home house prices which are driving down home ownership rates. Is that having an effect on this? Um, there's a whole, I think, piece of research that needs to be carried out in terms of what is happening with local election turnout. Um, now I know that overseas there's a lot of this, well there's, I, I think the, the rule of thumb that gets put out by some people over, uh, in terms of referencing what happens overseas is they make the case that uh, smaller councils overseas lead to greater turnout and I think we can see something similar to that in some of the statistics around New Zealand where I think rural and provincial councils had better turnout than metropolitan councils did um, but of course as I've said in previous episodes and this was a point that was actually reflected uh, in the review into the future of local government's uh, recent report uh, is that it's very hard to compare local government sectors between uh, systems between New Zealand and overseas because there are so many different contextual factors that determine local government and what it does and how it's funded and where it sits in constitutional arrangements. So it is very hard to compare and contrast systems. But that is, a, I think, a legitimate question. Is is local government close enough to its communities to be relevant to them? Or is it a question of do you need to fund local government more appropriately so it, so it can be relevant to its communities regardless of its size? Um, you know, here in Kapiti we're about 57,000 people and I think we had our lowest turnout um, 
significantly down on where we were in 2020. I think we might have been, again, we might have been lining with the national average, maybe 35, 36% off the top of my head, which is not, not a great thing. You'd think Carpety, you know, we are a predominantly older community. I would skew that way anyway in terms of um, our demographics. We have a, a lot of former public servants, a lot of current public servants who actually live here, who should be engaged with uh, and understand the political process, but they're not even voting locally. So I think there's a whole range of questions to be asked around that. Um, in terms of the results themselves, I think they are hugely interesting. Um, a lot has been written about what happened in Auckland where Wayne Brown won the mayoralty there and won it quite convincingly. Obviously a lot of people are saying he's only won by a very small percentage of the overall population base or eligible voter base of Auckland voting for him. Um, look, you guys have single, uh, sorry, you guys have first past the post up there. Uh, you know, there were multiple right-wing candidates heading into this election and progressively uh, they all dropped off one by one. We had Leo Malloy drop out of it, then we had Viv Beck drop out of it, and that left Wayne Brown to hoover up their support. And I think in an STV environment, he potentially those votes would have all gone to Wayne Brown anyway. And I think it's quite interesting that in an FPP environment, um, that he still absolutely walloped Efeso Collins. And I don't think Efeso Collins... I think he would have been a fantastic mayor. I think he has the passion and he's the drive. I, but I suspect what happened is that his campaign just hit the wrong notes to appeal to voters in Auckland. You know, Wayne Brown, for whatever you think about him, he seems to have at least been able to capture a sense of frustration both with Auckland Council but with uh, I think central government and channel that frustration with him and that potentially counted against Efeso um, Collins in terms of his campaign and, and what he was promising and campaigning on it you know it could be a, a case of the tide simply turning against him and you know good candidate in the wrong time I mean that's potentially what happened there and Wayne Brown sort of I think benefited to some extent by there there being no other viable right-wing candidate who was um, who was really credible with voters uh, Leo Malloy sort of was outrageous Viv Beck's campaign never really hit any sort of strides and Wayne Brown just sort of existed and hoovered them up I mean it's huge credit to him for being able to pull it off because people were writing him off earlier this year uh, and he absolutely romped home in the end now Wellington is obviously an uh, election that's close to my heart having grown up there and obviously being part of the Wellington extended beltway we're always interested in the Wellington mayoralty um, and Tori Farno's victory there was just absolutely emphatic and I think you know full hats off to her because she by all accounts just ran a formidable campaign with a exceptionally strong ground game uh, she benefited from the fact that Paul Eagle seemed to be essentially focused on 
taking on Andy Foster and trying to make it a two-horse race between them, uh, Andy, the incumbent mayor Andy Foster and Paul Eagle. Uh, and Tori Farno was just able to essentially look like the positive, forward-thinking uh, uh, mayor who would unite the city and bring it forward. And um, Paul Eagle's campaign, in all honesty, looked very disjointed. It uh, kept getting caught out in controversy after controversy. Uh, Paul Eagle obviously has some problematic uh, behaviours in his past in terms of how he's tweeted about council staff, in terms of his relationships with some people in the community, and I don't think that helped him at all. And generally, I don't think he really inspired people to get behind him. And you could see that from, I think, the very the very formulaic endorsements that most Labour Party aligned or Labour Party endorsed candidates gave him. I mean, it was a very messy, messy campaign from him. And I suspect Andy Foster was actually hoping to benefit from that, from Paul Eagle uh, not being particularly well-liked, and he, he probably hoped that Tori Fano wasn't going to pick up the support that she did, and he would, you know, find a way to... To pull it off yet again but uh wasn't to be for for andy so yeah tori Fano, just a phenomenal result in wellington i think and you know as someone having myself run as someone who had basically no public profile when i first stood in uh, 2019 and i managed to top the district-wide uh vote up here in carpety to get myself onto council and i only fell short of the mayoralty by was it 971 votes or something something like that i think that was the exact number um you know i i really take my hat off to to tori for what i think was just a phenomenal result and it shows that if you are a you don't have to be an established candidate if you can pull together a campaign team if you have the passion if you have the vision if you have the right opportunity at the right time and you can grasp that with both hands you can make it in local government and i think that's that does apply somewhat to central government um it's all you know you can make the joke that it's all about timing um but you've got to have the the ability to grab that so i think you know just a phenomenal result there Ah, Christchurch. Now, to be honest, I haven't hadn't really followed the Christchurch mayoral election very much, and to be honest, I don't think many people followed the Christchurch mayoral election. I saw some jokes around there that you that the two front runners were nearly indistinguishable from each other, uh, and so I will just say Phil Major won there. He has a bit of a colourful background in terms of some of the antics he got up to in previous training, but. I think the most interesting thing is the fact that he has already teamed up with Wayne Brown in terms of trying to present an alternative to Three Waters, and we'll talk about that shortly. Uh, so he's definitely, I think, trying to, uh, I guess, leverage his position and um, make some changes in terms of how Christchurch is perceived potentially going forward i mean i don't really know that much about him to be perfectly honest with you um other than the fact he had i guess had been a bit of a thorn in the side of some established uh interests in christchurch previously so it'll be interesting to what happens there now dunedin's another race which i found really interesting and that's where aaron hawkins the incumbent mayor there uh was defeated um now again i don't know much about uh the 
who he lost to. I, his name is escaping me right now, and I, I'm not going to Google it. I'm very sorry. Uh, but I, I think it's really interesting that, uh, from what I could see, and admittedly this is a very online um, Batway perspective that I have of what was happening, is that Aaron seemed to be doing a really solid job. He seemed to be advocating really strongly for Dunedin. They seemed to be trying some new things, um, trying to reinvigorate the city centre there and that. But ultimately, again, it could well be a case that there was just a change in, almost a change in the national mood, as it were, that saw things swing against him there. Or I should say a change in the mood of the city that saw things swing against him there. Um, which is really unfortunate, because as I said just before, I think Aaron's been a fantastic advocate for Dunedin. He's seen, you know, he's genuinely passionate about uh, the city, had some really great ideas about how to bring things forward, worked hard for it. Um, but that's politics, it's really cruel sometimes. Obviously, uh, Invercargill was another mayoral race that got attention because uh, Tim Shabolt, the incumbent mayor there, was uh, uh, defeated by his deputy, Nobby Clark. Um, and obviously, Tim, famous for saying uh, which the effect of... Uh, uh, what was it? Um, I don't care where, as long as I'm mayor, or something like that. Um, yeah, so a, huge, a, a long, long political career has potentially come to an end there. I think it's a bit sad that it's come to an end in the way that it has. I really feel like uh, Tim Shadbolt probably should have called stumps on on his career at the end of this triennium, and at least, uh, you know, he could have bowed out with his head held relatively high about how and what he had done over the years for Invercargill um, and I think he still can to some extent I think it's just very unfortunate to see what's happened there um, and he's described it as him being shocked that he didn't even get re-elected to council um, so I suspect we'll hear a lot less of what's happening in Invercargill going forward uh, in part because a lot of it I think was a little bit of people watching a train wreck in process down there unfortunately so um sort of wish uh, sir tim and his family all the very best for for whatever's next for him and then obviously being having been on carpenter coast district council it would be remiss of me not to say anything about what happened here locally and i sort of always knew it was going to be close uh between between rob mccann and uh, Janet Holborough and it turned out to be very close in the end only a, a few hundred votes in it between them but Janet Holborough was successful there uh, and um, as I've, I've been quite public uh, Rob was my preferred candidate there I signed his nomination form um, and you know I've developed quite a, a good friendship with him over the previous training and worked together with him on a number of, of issues uh, and Rob obviously didn't stand for council either he was a mayoral only campaign so he's um, he sort of added the local government picture a bit for now I imagine so you know it really shows that uh, anything can happen and because the turnout is so low only a few hundred votes in it um, yeah I know I sort of certainly felt it in 2019 and I had a, there was a slightly larger margin there uh, but 
you do sort of sit there and wonder, oh, what more could I have done to get more people out to vote? And I think for for the local campaign here, I think there were probably a couple of issues that were at play. And I think one of them, the, the crucial one was the question about what's going to happen with Parapara Umu Airport. And I think Janet Holborough said to each person she met what she thought she wanted them to hear about the airport and the, the, I remember seeing during the campaign various surveys that groups put out and you could see slightly differing views from her given to each group um, that's politics there was a Roman Roman politician back in the day who made a whole career out of promising everyone exactly what they wanted to hear and then not delivering on it so that'll be interesting to watch that fold out um, and I think the other issue is that there were some internal machinations within the Labour Party locally that I think caused some issues. And if you're unaware, uh, Janet Holborough was the Labour-endorsed candidate. Rob had previously been the Labour Party candidate for Ōtaki, the general electorate, um, and he'd been endorsed by Labour in the 2019 election as a councillor, um, but obviously stood against uh, the Labour-endorsed candidate for the mayoralty this time so there was some obviously there's some issues within Labour uh, which I understand may have been somewhat ugly um, but that's a, that's an issue for the Labour Party to sort out amongst itself so I'm, I'm not going to go into any other race mayoral races there. oh no I lie I'll, I'll mention Rotorua um, because Tanya Tapsell won the mayoralty up there uh, she was obviously a hot favourite to win that and um, she's one of the, I think, the provincial mayors who's, or even the provincial councillor's last trainee who received a lot of national coverage, in part because of the fact that she stood in the 2020 general election for the National Party. Um, but she's obviously, uh, she won the election there, and Rotorua, I think, is quite well served because they've got some, some great local democracy reporting there, which highlights some of their local issues. Uh, but also the fact that that um, I think a lot of the issues that Rotorua is dealing with in terms of emergency housing, in terms of the recovering tourist sector, uh, I think those are a lot of things that other provincial areas are trying to juggle with at the moment too. So Rotorua will be really interesting to watch going forward as well. So having talked about some of those big mayoral elections, I'm not going to dive into to actual the council level stuff because we would be here all day. Uh, but what I thought I'd do was just now share some thoughts about some of the big issues that are coming up in this coming triennium and I'm thinking about the sector-wide issues not um, not necessarily hot topic issues within individual communities which there are always going to be lots and lots of those and I can already think of about three or four of them just here in Carpety off the top of my head so let's not go into those uh, again you'd be here all day so three waters is obviously the big one and I say this with the disclosure that I've applied for roles uh, with Three Waters um, knowing full, full well that there is some political risk around Three Waters in terms of its longevity as a reform program because I think in part what we saw across much of the country was was a, a kickback against Three Waters and against people who were perceived as being too closely associated with Labour who have obviously been the, the chief architects of Three Waters. I think 
Wellington is a slightly different kettle of fish because I think things are so bad with the water network under Wellington Water that uh, Three Waters looks like a really good solution for for Wellington because they see it as a way to get other people to help pay for the massive, massive bill um, to repair their water networks um, and to meet future growth and resilience and all those things as well. But I think across much of the rest of the country, uh, despite pro protestations from left-leaning or left or Labour-endorsed candidates that they had issues with Three Waters, I think the association may well have been too much for people to overcome. Now, obviously, we've seen in the last few days, uh, we've had uh, Wayne Brown from Auckland, Phil Major from uh, Christchurch. We've had the Waimakariri mayor, whose name is escaping me, um, but he's, he's sort of the one, the face who is at the front of the Communities for Local Democracy group that's been opposing Three Waters, they've all stood up and put out an alternative vision for Three Waters. Now, I haven't gone into much detail, I haven't looked into much detail about their proposal, um, but the long story short is it's essentially a halfway house between what the government is looking for, what councils want, um, and I think Bernard Hickey uh, from the Kaka wrote it quite eloquently this week where he said that essentially this three this alternative three waters vision presented by the three mayors and supported by other mayors as well essentially presented the government with an off-ramp from the current toxicity over three waters uh, and the government drove straight past that off-ramp um, that's a that's a political decision that the government can make uh, but potentially they're going to have to reverse up and find that off-ramp again or find another suitable off-ramp if they decide that the political pain that they're going to take from Three Waters or the potential political pain that they'll take from Three Waters at the coming election next year um, outweighs the political, the loss of face from giving up on all the political capital they've invested into Three Waters over the past two years. Um, and that you know that's a really hard political calculus to make for any for any government, um, and I really don't know where the government will land. I think it leads that the situation leads to a lot of uncertainty for the public servants who are trying in good faith to to progress the three waters reform and get everything ready and rolling so that if it does go ahead as uh, as advertised, then they'll be able to get it rolling out as efficiently and pain-free as possible um so yeah it's a it's a tricky one to see what will happen there i mean it, i think it's definitely going to continue to to shape debate in the local government sector going forward and wayne brown has i think you know he, he has nothing to lose by using it as a using it to get himself headlines and uh, create friction with the government over the issue he's uh, he as was covered in the media and one of his first things to do is to write to um, Watercare in Auckland and tell them to stop working on any three waters transition stuff to stop cooperating with the government which he doesn't really have the power to do uh, he needs some full backing of the council to at least issue that sort of instruction but actually he's putting a state he was putting a stake in the ground while he could before the council actually got convened um, 
which arguably is clever campaigning on his part. Um, and it just ups the political stakes around it and puts the councillors when they come into his council in some quite gnarly positions in terms of where they stand for it. And for the record, Auckland Council has said that Three Waters isn't for them as it is listed, uh, as is proposed by the government. So, you know, that's going to be a really interesting thing to watch. And uh, it's obviously a hugely political debate and it's going to get even more so as we head towards the next year's general election. And... You know, if you were Labour and you were thinking this election's too close or we're too worried about Winston Peters getting oxygen and bringing New Zealand first back on the back of Three Waters Pain, then this might be the sort of thing that you kick the can down the road on or pull the plug on. You know, there's going to be a cabinet reshuffle probably around February next year. Um, perfect opportunity to, you know, hit the reset button on Three Waters and say, look, we need to go back and we need to work on this more. Um, so potentially that's what's going to happen there. Now the next big thing that's playing on, and you know we've covered these in other episodes, is Resource Management Act reform. Now we've already seen that the legislation for that is is behind schedule. Uh, I'm not sure if anything's come out around the Strategic Planning Act. Let's have a quick um, let's have a quick Google while we're here, shall we? Strategic Planning Bill. Uh, it doesn't look like it is there. No, no, I don't think it is. Um, I'm literally just clicking through to have a look. There's lots of stuff that was off previous, um, previous news things, but yeah, the, um, Strategic Planning Act doesn't seem to be coming out. There was an update that was come out before the end of the year that potentially hasn't come through just yet. Uh, so that's interesting. So I've said this before that if people think Three Waters is big and controversial, um, Resource Management Act reform is just lurking around the corner waiting to jump you as soon as you get past Three Waters. And Again, for the record, I think what they're proposing, and generally what they're proposing, I should say, in terms of Resource Management Act reform, is the right thing to do. I, you know, I'm a firm believer in taking a regional perspective uh, to these things, especially in regions where there's a lot of interconnectivity between the districts and the cities that make it up. In Wellington, I say this as someone from my experience in Wellington, you know, we are very interconnected. The Wairapa less so, um, in terms of its relationship to Wellington, though it's still heavily influenced by Wellington. Um, but in terms of uh, the Hutt Valley, uh, Wellington, Porirua, and the Kapiti Coast, and even now to a, a large and larger extent, Horofenua, it's all very interconnected with Wellington. So there is that regional uh, discussion and decision making around these things that has to take place. Um, but again, this hasn't really entered people's radars yet uh, because we haven't seen the full picture of all the legislation. So all this still has to play out. So that's going to be something that's going to be really, really tricky for these new councils to um, to deal with. And they're going to have to deal with this almost before we can get to the review into the future for local governments, uh, draft recommendations for the sector. Now, these are draft recommendations that were released uh, on the 28th of October. Um, and there's some high profile stuff in there, such as lowering the voting age to 16, uh, having the Electoral Commission run local body elections, uh, and I'm just trying to think of what one of the other ones. Oh, a four year term was another one of the ones they recommended. Um, but a lot of the other things in there were 
weren't so much recommendations as they were we would like they were framing up questions for more input from the community about what the possible shape of things could be or there are recommendations for the government to go off and um, to consider things to explore things or to review things I think there was about 10 or so different calls for different reviews or considerations of different uh, aspects of local government which really feels like that's the thing that the the review panel was meant to be doing they are meant to be reviewing and recommending these things but there's a lot of kicking for kicking the ball for uh, the can further down the road from them on some of these things um and particularly around the structure for local government they're sort of asking for more feedback on possible structure ideas um again i'm sort of like well you've been working on this for a while you must have some idea about what your preferred structure is but no it hasn't come through as of yet maybe it'll come through in their final report but again, it's one of these things where if Three Waters possibly gets gets chucked out or reset or paused, um, then that starts to lead into, do you have to pause Resource Management Act reform? Do you have to, you know, what happens to these recommendations? Do they just end up sitting on the shelf? And National looks like they've come out um, quite strongly in opposition to some aspects of the draft recommendations. So... You know, if there's a change of government next year, those recommendations are going to be sitting dead in the water. But even so, there's going to be a lot of discussion, especially over the next uh, three to three or four months leading into February next year, when you need to get your uh, your submissions in on the consultation on it. Um, a lot of councils will be spending quite a bit of time in terms of framing up their responses to the re- recommendations. Now, of course, while all this is going on. You've got all these national policy statements which are still carrying on. Uh, so there's the national policy statement on urban development, which and that's linked into the medium density residential standards for tier one councils. Um, so all the councils had to n- publicly notify their changes before the, the recent election. Uh, some of them, such as Christchurch, took positions that may well not have been legal. Uh, Auckland Council tiptoed the line between what was legal and what potentially wasn't. Um, Wellington had a very messy meeting where they walked back on a whole lot of their commitments and no one's quite sure whether they've interpreted things right. Up here in Carpety, we, I think, have generally actually gone with the spirit of the MPSUD and the MDRS. Um, and generally actually implemented those in a much more permissive standard than some of these big metropolitan councils have and that's obviously i think a really contentious issue for a lot of people here who i'll be quite blunt i think a lot of people here seem to have forgotten that carpety's grown from twenty thousand people in around 1990 to fifty-seven thousand people now um and we're sort of projected to grow by maybe another 30 32,000 in the next 30 years which is you know less than what we've already grown by in the past 30 years you know people seem to want to preserve things in amber even though clearly people want to move here so you, something has to give you can't stop people wanting to move here so you're either accepting ridiculously high house prices artificially high ones um, or you make provision for people to live here unless you want bloody urban sprawl all the way up to foxton maybe some people do want that um sounds terrible like a terrible idea to me but on top of that all uh we had the national policy statement on highly productive land finally emerge um and that's quite pertinent in terms of my last comment there and that it does start to put limits on 
urban sprawl round highly productive farmland and this was started in response to urbanization and urban sprawl around Pukekohe and other areas um, and is really uh, intending to to not lose that farmland that requires lower inputs to produce high quality produce effectively um, and that's really the, the, the question is to what extent are you willing to sacrifice um, domestic food production or are you willing to have more food production that requires more inputs on less productive land um, there's a whole lot of trade-offs or do you want to enable more residential growth on that um, I know a lot of economists would argue let the market decide let the market decide what the best use of that land is uh, that I guess it sort of ignores the reality that when you put concrete house pads and tarmac roads over this land you know to a large extent you lose that productivity of that land forever you know it doesn't it doesn't come back um, and you're pushing that production out onto less productive land that needs higher inputs which leads to greater environmental impacts um, so there's a whole lot of trade-offs and I'm not going to pretend to to dissect them all here but essentially the idea is it puts limits on urban sprawl in some parts of the country where the, the government is looking to protect that land there are all there are issues around it in terms of sheep and beef farming in particular where it doesn't use highly productive land um, but what this is liable to do is to to push um, potentially some development onto the sort of uh, the class four and five stuff that sheep and beef farmers is is their best productive land for their uses um, it increases competition for that while they're also getting squeezed on the other side by forestry and there's been lots of questions around um, around the impact of forestry and carbon planting in particular on the sheep and beef sector and as a disclaimer I used to work for beef and lamb New Zealand so I obviously I've, my knowledge of the sector comes from my time of being employed there and that is a you know so that's a hugely contentious issue as well uh, and alongside of this there's still things bubbling away like the NPS on indigenous biodiversity um, and the NPS on fresh water as well so councils have a massive amount of work to do in this policy space just even if you took even if you took three waters out of it even if you took RMA reform out of it even if you took the future for local government recommendations out of it there is massive massive work just in those policy national policy statement areas um, that could occupy a full council triennium no trouble and then sitting beneath all well sitting I guess over the top of all this uh, you know there's big systemic issues um, climate change climate change is the one that springs to mind right off the bat uh, we've obviously had he um, the government's response to Hewaka Ekanoa which was the primary sector's proposal on how they could manage agricultural emissions um, we've got the first lots of emission budgets in terms of the country as a whole and how we start to have to meet those to reduce our overall carbon footprint and there's roles for local authorities to play in helping their communities meet those as well as them trying to reduce um, reduce their own carbon emissions or offset them or or however they choose to approach that all while they're managing the impacts of climate change on their communities as well so you know that's becoming an increasingly important focus 
uh, for local government um, and quite often local government is the first port of call for where the costs of adapting to climate change are falling and we're seeing that in terms of coastal erosion in particular um, I know that's very much the case here in Kapiti where there is coastal erosion taking place but in other parts of the, the country too and so that's actually something that again comes out of RMA reform as well is there is the there's a climate change bill in that which is meant to help frame up some of the ability of local authorities to respond to these things and again we don't know exactly what's in that so you know everything's everything's very in, interconnected in terms of the challenges that councils are facing in the next triennium um, and you know I'm, I, I love local government I'm a huge advocate for the role that local government plays I have my own thoughts about what the appropriate I guess primary level of local government is in terms of I'm very much a I take a very much regional perspective um, in terms of where I think that primary level and um, representation that should sit while well, you still should I still believe you should have representation sitting underneath it in terms of community boards or local boards or that sort of thing um, but yeah I think um, I've sort of lost my train of thought here I told you I hadn't scripted this um, but yes there's just so many challenges here that you know I I'm not envious of uh, I'm not envious of the councillors around the country who are having to deal of these challenges over the next three years. I respect them immensely for taking on these challenges, um, but I definitely don't envy them. I definitely don't envy them. Having sat around the table last triennium, I know how how fraught and heated these some of these issues can get. Um, and I also know how technically challenging some of the, the stuff you have to get your head around in order to actually make informed decisions on these issues can be so anyway that's I guess a very a very messy and a very verbose and a very uh, brain vomity type approach to to what's what's happened in the recent election and what's going on um, in the sector in terms of the big sector wide issues over the next three years and I haven't even touched on things like funding which continues to be an absolute uh, an absolute nightmare for the sector to try and deal with and again I sort of noticed in the the review into the future for local governments draft recommendations that um, they didn't really propose uh, any I think major new funding methods there's some discussion about um, infrastructure bonds which are used overseas and they talked about the government making it easier for local authorities to try new funding methods um, but again there was uh, there wasn't really much of a discussion I think about proposals that are put forward around um, tax revenue sharing agreements and that sort of thing that could provide councils with a solid inflation proof base to their uh, their funding challenges um, though I do agree with the the, the recommendation the panel had around that um, property rates should still be the, the principal funding source because it um, <clears throat> I think it, uh, it it is a property tax which New Zealand really doesn't have anything else other than rates as a property tax um, but having that that pressure of rates does I think lead to some sort of 
fiscal responsibility in councils, or at least in theory it should. I don't know if it necessarily plays out in practice that way. I certainly think voters wouldn't think it played out in practice that way, to be perfectly honest. But I think the theory there is reasonable. Anyway, before I get distracted again, let's talk about the future of the podcast. Um, As I sort of talked about earlier, there's obviously... And I've talked about this in earlier episodes. In terms of my priorities in life, um, there's always, I guess, my primary income earning thing is always my first uh, priority in terms of of uh, time. So obviously that was council, last triennium. Um, soon it might be something else. If it's a role in the public sector, that's naturally going to mean that I can't carry on this podcast at all because as a public servant, um, when you are a public servant, you need to be politically neutral. Uh, you can have opinions before you're a public servant. I know a great many number of politicians, um, especially whether they're at the local level or even parliamentary level, end up back in the public service in some way. Um, and rightfully so you know you sort of accept that yes you're allowed to be political before you're in the public service but actually when you're in it you're political you have to uh, behave in a professional and politically neutral way and um, that's a reasonable assumption I think uh, that if that was the case if I picked up a role in the public sector then sadly the po- podcast would come to an end uh, or at least extended hiatus maybe I certainly wouldn't be able to revisit it until uh, my situation changed um, which I think is it's sad in a way because I'd love to be able to to keep recording episodes and I'm sort of planning to try and record keep recording episodes over the next the next however long it does actually take me to find a role um, and you know in an ideal world if I won lotto I would love I'd love to expand this into a sort of a broader concept of being a local government news and research and analysis and consultancy thing um, that could uh, build on the podcast and do a lot more work around it and ideally add some sort of value to the local government sector and to those who are interested in it. Um, But that sort of thing, it requires time and it actually requires certainty of funding, um, which I'll be honest, you know, I don't have at the moment. Uh, I've literally, I am blissfully unemployed, which means I can sit around here on a Wednesday afternoon as I'm doing and record this. Um, but that's uh, that's about it. I can't, you know, I don't know if I've got the the financial ability to do anything more because a lot of the stuff I'd like to do, I've got to spend money to build the, I guess the um, the capability to be able to deliver on some of that stuff. Um, so, like I said, unless I when lotto, that's not something I can likely uh i can likely do um and as i said before the chances are that if i'm in the public sector i'm not going to be able to to do this anyway and potentially not in the private sector as well because uh quite understandably i think the private sector is is reluctant to have um their employees necessarily put opinions about various political issues especially if they have to deal with local government they don't you know they don't want their staff weighing in with various ideas that decision makers they have to deal with might not be happy with their perspective of that and you know that's life that's one of the trade-offs I think you make um so yeah I think in terms of the future I'm going to try and record record some more episodes while I can and while I'm job hunting um notwithstanding the fact that uh, I'm 
you know, depending on what I've applied for and what I get an interview for, I might end up taking a slightly lower profile when I'm doing that sort of thing because I want to focus on that. And like I said, I don't want to rock the boat on things. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that uh, that gives you an idea of where I'm at and what I'm thinking about. And, you know, feel free. Hunt me down on Twitter or LinkedIn. Um, if you've got, if you have a great comms or government relations opportunity um and i'm thinking i'm i know this is a shameless uh employment pitch on my fact on my part but i'm you know i'm looking for roles that are into i guess that sort of senior comms manager level where i'm ideally leading a team same with government relations you know i've got huge strategic mind i like to think about those big picture issues and distill them down and think about policy implications and all that so you know you got an opportunity get in touch um i'll have a think about it but anyway until until then until i get a job or until the next episode um hi we'll catch you next time on local aotearoa and this time because i'm not a politician i'm not not going to have to do my usual spiel at the end of this other than to say as per always this is all my own personal opinion not anyone else's um and yeah, we'll catch you next time.